Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Miranda Corcoran and joining me today is Lizette Lopez-Swidke, author of Transmedia Adaptation in the 19th Century. So Lizette, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having having me. So before we begin to talk about your book, could you tell us a little bit more about your background and your research interests? Yeah, I think so. I am currently a newly associate, a newly associate professor of English at the University of Arkansas, where I've taught for the last seven years. Um, I'm also associate director for the Arkansas Humanities Center. Um, I've been working, my, my areas of expertise and, and specialization are 19th century British literature and, um, and gender studies, and also adaptation studies. Um, a part of the reason why I'm really interested in the growing interdisciplinary field of adaptation studies is that I think that it's a wonderful way of um, bringing literary history and bringing a lot of the topics in the humanities that are important to all of us working in these fields to a broader audience. And a lot of my work um, kind of strives for that to kind of bridge to get bridge uh, the academy and you know the, you know public audiences and also um, inter in, interdisciplinary discussions and so that's that's really a, a bit about me and my interests. Thank you. So to start with, could you tell us a little bit more about transmedia, um, particularly transmedia adaptation? What does that term mean, and where does it come from? I think so. Transmedia adaptation is a term that uh, I think is used most mostly in contemporary media studies. Um, the person who, who the scholar whose work I read um, that has kind of influenced my my thoughts mostly about transmedia adaptation is Henry Jenkins, who's published many works on um, convergence culture and um, and and transmedia storytelling. Um, I take a little bit of a different approach than he does. So I'll tell you briefly what what he sees transmedia adaptation as is in contemporary storytelling, especially in um, the convergence of the media into separate media industries. Uh, transmedia adaptation becomes the the kind of elas- the elastic nature of storytelling, where you have um, a version of a story will come out in a book that gets translated or or adapted into film, and then you have any number of extensions, reimaginings, um, prequels, sequels um, that may cross multiple media platforms. So you have not just television and film, which is what we usually think about when we think about adaptation, but we see the same, you know, franchises um, expanding into comic books, into video games, into all kinds of different media. And you have these audiences that go through, go to all of these different media, or, or some of them maybe just kind of focus on one medium, but you have basically a story um, or a story world that's available across different media platforms. And so that's a, a, a really kind of key way of thinking about adaptation in our contemporary moment. If we think about big um, franchises like Star Wars or the Avengers or the DC comic book universe, um, you have, you know, a, a story world that's unfolding um, constantly over multiple platforms, over multiple forms. Um, so... The, so I use that idea to think about storytelling historically. Um, and like I said before, I'm a 19th century uh, literature specialist. And so uh, my, my focus is the way that um, stories were retold and dispersed and repackaged um, across forms and media um, in, in the time before cinema. 
so before before we have um, you know the adaptation of films uh, or sorry books into films, we have the adaptation of books into uh, stage adaptations and maybe abridgments and all other kinds of products. Um, you know, painting, illustration. So that's the way that I'm seeing the term. Um, one of the reasons, I mean, the major difference is the the forms, right, and the media that's available in terms of uh, of adaptation. Um, those those do differ quite a bit um, in the 18th and 19th century to you know compared to the present day. Um, but there are other other kind of um, reasons why the practice was a little bit different. And I, I'm sure I'll get, get a chance to talk about that in a bit. But I'm thinking about the same concept, um, the way it worked historically, and the way it worked a little bit more dispersed than it does now. So now you have, you know, a corporate entity often kind of taking control of a lot of the way that um, these transmedia adaptations um, unfold, right? They're marketed in a very kind of intentional way. Um, that was different in the 19th century um, because you didn't have the same kind of corporate involvement. But the practice itself, um, the interest in doing it, um, that, that has been pretty consistent over time. And that's what this book is about. Okay, thank you. So you note in, your, in the introduction that modern audiences often associate adaptation with modern blockbusters like the Avengers or Harry Potter, even though it was a common practice in the 18th and 19th centuries. So what did it mean to adapt a work in the 19th century? What kind of works were adapted? And how did this practice differ from modern cinematic adaptations? Okay, so I think I, I would I would say that you know, for for me, um, the the practice is very similar and almost identical to um, contemporary cinematic adaptations and contemporary um, transmedia storytelling. With the the biggest difference being that um, own the ownership of you know who owns an adaptation that was a very different context, and actually it was. The 19th century context that led us to um, the contemporary franchise model, um, where uh, over over uh, debates about copyright. So I have um, quite quite a bit of discussion about specifically Charles Dickens and his relationship to watching his books get adapted without being credited to him, um, often while he was still writing them, since he was publishing them um, as serialized novels. And you get uh, several um, examples of where, I mean, most of his novels uh, started getting adapted for the stage, even, you know, when they were only like a third or halfway through the serial, um, the, the run. So <laughs> people are adapting his works, and he hasn't even finished writing them yet. Um, so there. The idea of copyright is the is the major difference from uh, from contemporary um, the contemporary context, but otherwise it was very similar. And so you had um, both old works getting adapted into new formats, and you had contemporary works getting also adapted very quickly. So I can give you uh, two brief uh, examples that um, I discuss in in. Um, in the book. And so one of them, for example, is you have um, in the late Victorian period, you have this kind of reemergence of the Camelot stories. And so um, Tennyson largely kicks that off um, with his own interests in the Arthurian tradition, but you have so many different um, poets and uh, dramatists and painters getting really interested in adapting these stories from Camelot. Um, and that's that's an example of kind of an old uh, set of stories, right, from the medieval tradition um, that get completely repackaged and reimagined and modernized for Victorian audiences. So you have this this practice of taking older works, uh, this is true also of Shakespeare's works and how they circulate in the 19th century, and giving them a modern a modern face. 
So very similar to um, the practice today of like um, the the interest in kind of neo-Victorianism. Was one of the points I make in the book is that this practice of Victorian medievalism <laughs> um, is how it's called by by specialists. Um, this interest in adapting stories from the past and modernizing them um, becomes uh, kind of re reimagined again in the contemporary moment where you have so much interest in. Um, Jane Austen and uh, the gothic novels of the 19th century and specifically kind of period pieces. So that's that's one um, form of storytelling that happens in the 19th century is the repacking, repackaging of old stories for new audiences. But you also have the same phenomenon happening with books that were just coming out. So, for example, um, one of the, one of the books and one of the stories that um, I tend to kind of default to quite a bit is is Frankenstein because I mean it's one of my areas. It's one of the texts that I, I know the, the most and I teach the most and I'm really well versed in its history. Um, but it's a really great example because people know Frankenstein. I mean, just about anybody knows Frankenstein. Even four year olds. If you walk into a, a room full of four year olds and you say, "Hey," what do you know about Frankenstein? They all have these ideas, even though, of course, none of them are old enough to have any familiarity with Mary Shelley and her novel. And that's because um, we have this long history of adaptation. Um, and that history began almost immediately um, for Frankenstein. So Mary Shelley publishes the book in 1818. And in 1823, we have it become a stage hit, basically. And um, so that's a, that's a an example of a new a newer novel that um, immediately or almost immediately gets adapted for the stage and then circulates primarily via a number of different stage adaptations in the 1820s. You have um, between England and France, we know that there were at least 15 different stage versions of Frankenstein um, that came out in the 1820s. And that is by far the primary way that the story is circulated um, in the 1820s and then continued to circulate. Um, and that's the way it continues. It remains like the primary mode of circulation for, for the Frankenstein story. So those are two major differences um, or so, sorry, two major um, forms of, of or examples of what was getting adapted. It was both old works and new works. Um, but the major difference was not so much that they were being adapted or that they were being changed significantly, because that's something that people ask me quite a bit, too, is, well, were they changing or were they trying to be faithful to the text? And it's like, no, they, they weren't trying to be faithful at all. Um, on, on the contrary, sometimes you get, you know, comedy, you know, farces based on Frankenstein when it's obviously not a funny book at all. Um, so there was no attempt at fidelity at all. That's that's not a that's nothing. It's it's a concept that's very much um, an idea that I think contemporary scholars like to talk a lot about when they talk about adaptation. But it's not really the way that at you know the the people who were actually doing the adaptations and working on these adaptations um, thought about adaptation. Um, and the biggest difference then was who owns it. And um, back in the 19th century. Um, basically, the idea was that if you adapted a work into a new format, then you owned it. It's, you didn't have to credit the author. Um, and so sometimes you do get the authors credited in some shape or form. But in the 19th century, it was kind of a free-for-all. And that's a major difference um, to where we are today. So you note in your book that with this project, you really wanted to flip the script on how scholars understand adaptations rather than reading adaptations as derivative works or as part of the afterlife of the original text, you see the practice as essential to textual production and the endurance of literary works. Can you tell us a bit more about why you chose to approach adaptation in this manner? Yeah, that's a, a, it's a great question. And it's really what's at the heart of my interest in adaptation. So um, I think that a lot of times what what we see, not not so much in adaptation studies, but definitely with with literary scholars, um, is that you see, well, you have this book, and this book is so great, and the reason why this book is so great, or one of the ways that we can prove that this book is so great, is that it's been adapted over and over and over again. And what what I 
have been able, from what I can, can tell in, you know, from my research, and I've been working on this book for a very, very long time, um, you know, it's, it's over a decade's worth of research and kind of thinking about these ideas, is that, well, you know, what if you take the opposite approach? Like, what if you say, well, this is a, a you know, a quote unquote, great work of literature, and that's a, it's a complicated and loaded term, but let's just go with that for a second. Um, if you look at the cultural histories of any of these big books that are like really well known, what you see is that they have these very long standing histories of adaptation that in many ways um, created, right, the, or, or forged the path forward for that book to become so well known. Um, Frankenstein is a great example of this. When it's published originally in 1818, it's published anonymously and it has 500 copies published. And that's it. I mean, it wasn't a book that got great reviews. A lot of people actually trashed it. Um, it was seen as immoral by some people. It was just seen as, you know, not a not good writing. It was, you know, it seems too gothic, too political, too. There was a plenty of things that people critiqued it for. Um, and there's a version of this where, you know, the book, like many other books, just kind of falls into obscurity or the story does. And what ends up happening is that when it gets adapted in 1823, Mary Shelley's father, William Godwin, who is you know, a, a scholar and a, um, a public intellectual and, uh, you know, a writer and a philosopher and all of these, um, you know, great things in his own right, tells her, hey, this is a great time to put out another edition of Frankenstein and see if this stage version is um, popular, then maybe, you know, you can sell more books. And he personally oversees um, an edition that comes out in 1823, where now 1500 copies of the book are in, are in circulation. So it basically you know, that, the, that adaptation prompts um, a quadrupling of the available number of copies in print. And so that alone is significant. What, what I find even more fascinating, though, is that um, in, with, especially with some of the bigger adaptations and like Presumption or The Fate of Frankenstein, which is like the big blockbuster of 1823, is that on any given night when you went to the theater, um, 2,000 people could be watching this story or so, so 2000 or so people could be watching this story on stage. And so when you start thinking about that exponentially, how many people are experiencing this story per night, 2000 per night. And it's like at that point, 2000, there's only 2000 copies of the book in print at all. So you start to see that the, the thing that's really kind of moving Frankenstein forward, um, and this, this ends up happening to be the case also with um, a lot of Dickens's works, or most of them, um, with and with a lot of other writers from the period. What, what starts to really propel them forward is that they're being adapted so many times that the story continues to gain interest. It becomes like a form of publicity. But it also means that a lot of people are, are only consuming. Like it, it does sell books, but not everybody who watches a movie today goes out and reads the book. Um, but it does kind of, the, the relationship it's not, it's not a, you know, it's, it's, it's an interrelated kind of phenomenon. There's not one thing or the other um, that becomes more important. Um, literary scholars may think that the book, right, is more important, but, um, you know, if you're working in the film industry or if you're an actor or if you're, you know, you work on the stage, like that's not the most interesting format of a story. And so what I'm interested in this book is kind of tracking that and showing, hey, you know, we should probably, as literary scholars, um, we should probably be thinking um, more about adaptation. We should be thinking more and supporting it, right? Um, thinking about, okay, if I really want a book to make um, a big cultural impact, then the thing I should be doing is hoping and encouraging people to adapt it, right? To create new forms of it, to engage with it critically. And so that that's that's really like at the heart of my approach to thinking about adaptation is not that, you know, these are, oh, uh, these, they're, they're these secondary or derivative works, but that they're, they're, they are works that are in conversation with the original um, and that they are works that, you know, if, if they disappear, basically what you see is a disappearance of the importance of the original work, at least culturally, like maybe not to literary historians, but 
um, to the kind of the culture at large or, you know, the the modern period, right? Um, so I think a really great example of this, and I'll be really brief, is that, um, you know, the novels of Sir Walter Scott in the Romantic period um, and throughout, like, till the late 19th century, they were among the most adapted works. Um, there are hundreds of stage adaptations of all of Scott's novels. And what you start to see in the 20th century is a is less of an interest, declining interest in the novels of Scott. Um, not because Scott's works are any less relevant or any less good by whatever you know standards you want to judge them by, but there just seems to be less interest. And so what you end up also seeing is you, you you know, if you're if you teach the 19th century and you teach novels, how many people teach Scott? Um, I, that number is, is decreasing, and you start to see kind of a less of a cultural imprint. Um, you know, if you walk into a room for, full of four-year-olds, you know they may not be able to tell you anything about Ivanhoe, right? But they will tell you something about Frankenstein, um, and and that's the thing that I'm that that it's that relationship that I'm just really really excited about, and I think that needs to be explored more, um, both by um, literary historians and then also by people working. Um, in contemporary film and media studies and adaptation scholars, because you don't usually see these groups um, in conversation very much. In your book, then, you describe the 19th century as a period when commercial and literary adaptation proliferated, particularly on the stage. What was it about this period that was so conducive to the practice of adaptation? Yeah. So one of the things that I discuss in the book is that, um, you know, by the time you're getting into the second half of the 18th century and the first half of the 19th century, um, what you really start to see is this cultural shift around the idea of the arts um, and artistic production as a, um, a, there's a big, like, uh, economic shift. So what was usually um, supported through patronage right, through kind of wealthy support and donations, um, becomes increasingly a commercial endeavor. And so you have, you know, the rise of commercialism um, plays a huge role in the proliferation of adaptation. Again, you, there are examples of adaptation. You can go back to, um, you know, classical, you know, Greek works, right? You could think about, for example, um, you know, mythology um, as a form, you know, in all of the, the forms that it takes as a form of transmedia adaptation. But what really changes in the late 18th century is the rise of commercialism. Um, and so as industries emerge, right, as profitable um, or profit-driven enterprises, um, you see these industries really trying to figure out what's going to make the most money. And um, being able to have a, an item that's recognizable in some shape or form becomes a form of marketing, right? As a, a form of creating demand um, for a, a particular kind of story. And so I think that that's a very, a really big, you know, part of what happens. There's a second part too. And the second part is, is largely political. And so what you, what you have in the late 18th century um, is you know, the rise of democratic movements um, in the United States or what becomes the United States in France, in, um, you know, across the world. One of the things that happens is that politically, um, the idea that all of the, all of these literary forms or, or artistic forms, so literature, uh, visual arts, drama, that all of these um, forms and modes of storytelling should be um, largely accessible to a wide readership. I mean, before that, you're talking about, um, you know, uh, an, major works of art would be held in private collections. And what you have instead at this moment politically is you have the rise of the art gallery, for example. And so how do you get... Um, you know, a larger audience interested in coming to visit an art gallery. Well, one way to do it is to, 
you know, advertise it as um, we're going to create this, um, we're going to, you know, show you a lot of paintings based on Shakespeare's plays, right? And so um, that becomes a both a commercial driven, a commercial driven um, enterprise, but one that's also very kind of culturally grounding. So, um, you know, people who may, may, maybe those people went to go see Shakespeare's plays. Um, maybe they didn't. Maybe they just wanted to go hang out <laughs> at um, at the art gallery because it was very fashionable at the time. Um, but they're experiencing the story somehow. And so it, it becomes a, a time where this convergence of like the rise of commercialism, um, the rise of um, democratic movements that are about bringing um, literature and art to a larger audience. Um, these are two of the main conditions that really kind of propel this practice of adaptation that really creates it into a commercial endeavor. Um, the third point that I would bring in there, which is an example, and I also discussed this in the book, um, is that you have um, the technological shifts, right? The 19th century is um, known largely as being the um, the age of industrialization. And so one of the things you have can the ability to print new editions, right? A printing becomes um, much more affordable um, as the century moves forward. And then you also have the introduction of illustrated editions. Um, and so what you end up with, I have a chapter in the book um, that is about visual um, the visual arts. Um, and specifically, um, if you are an artist, a visual artist during the time, one of the things, and even today to a certain extent, but definitely during the, this time, um, one of the things that you would do and to make your name is, um, you know, adapt visually or illustrate um, the work of uh, either a well-known um, older writer or a new writer. And so you see, um, publishers really interested in selling these new illustrated editions and artists really interested in getting in on, you know, this is a way to get my, my artwork out there. Um, and there, there are those three, um, I think that the convergence of those three different, very different historical contexts um, really is the thing that drives um, the adaptation industry in the 19th century. And what it ends up doing is, is, kind of creating a blueprint for how um, adaptation continues to evolve in the 20th and 21st centuries. Okay, I actually wanted to pick up on an earlier point you made there about the changing nature of the arts, the idea that the arts are becoming more commercial and less dependent on patronage. They're becoming, like I said, a more commercial endeavor. So what did the term celebrity mean in the context of the 19th century? How did adaptation contribute to the growth of celebrity culture at this time? Yeah, thanks. So, um, yeah, it's a great question. I think one that I mean, there's there are so many different ways that you can take um, you can you can address that the, the rise of celebrity. Um, but you know, one of the things that I think makes a celebrity is like it's is their recognizability. Right. They have to to be a celebrity. You have to be people have to recognize you. And so the way that that gets built in the 19th century is by is through a number of different a different of, of different avenues. But it's like this idea of repetition is really, really central to it. So, um, you know, for literary historians, specifically ones um, who work in the, the period that I do, um, you know, Byron is known as being kind of one of the first, if not probably the first literary celebrity. And so I, he, I discuss him um, in, in the book. And largely what you see Byron, um, you know, partly on, on, of his own accord, but partly other people doing it is, is kind of driving this idea. And I'm going to give you a different version of the Byronic hero this time, and I'm going to give you a different version, you know, here, but there's going to be something that clearly ties all of these versions together, some kind of repetition. Um, and you start to see his, his, his face and his character or his, or his, his own kind of personal history getting, getting blended in with, um, his characters, um, with each version, right, that that gets circulated, and so that is part of what's building 
his celebrity during the time. Um, but this is not something that's just for literary celebrities. So um, stage celebrities, actors, actresses, um, they, sh sure, they have these kind of original um, plays that they might, you know, participate in. But really, if you look at a lot of the um, the most well-known actors of the 19th century, they are they are making a name for themselves by um, putting a new spin on Shakespeare's characters. Um, so you take an older work and you modernize it. And so we're going to see, oh, what, what's Sarah Siddons' version, right, of Shakespeare? Um, you know, what is uh, Ellen Terry's later in the Victorian period version of Shakespeare? And so that becomes a way of driving celebrity too. Um, one of the more interesting uh, examples that I give in the book is this American actor, Richard Mansfield, who um, reads Jekyll and Hyde, uh, The Strange Case of Jekyll and Hyde, which is published in 1886. He reads it and he's like, immediately, this needs to go on stage and I want to play Jekyll and Hyde. And so he he gets a version on the stage um, about six months or so after Jekyll and Hyde is published. So it's very quick. And he becomes, I mean, this, this character basically makes his career. Um, and he starts touring, playing Jekyll and Hyde. He spends a lot of time in London playing Jekyll and Hyde. And people are just really fascinated by it. And so I have an example there. He, you know, sold calendars um, of him and his, all of his characters. And most of these are characters based on, on, on books in some shape or form. And so that becomes a way of of building his own brand, building his own celebrity. Um, and you you see it to a lesser extent too. So you have authors, you have actors, and you see a less a bit of lesser extent um, in the adapters themselves. So that there are quite a few writers um, or dramatists in the 19th century who just become really well known for adapting works and they become um, kind of go-to people. Um, this becomes part of their repertoire and they're very... Um, prolific in this work because that's their main job. It's just to adapt works. Um, and so they build their professional identities around this idea of being professional adapters um, and knowing how to carefully craft a book or take a book um, and make it into something that people want to see, not just read. So there were lots of different ways that that idea of celebrity happened. But I mean, again, again, if you really kind of think about what is a celebrity, this idea of being easily recognizable, like how, what does it mean to become an icon? You have to be repeated over and over and over and over again to the point that everyone can recognize you in some shape or form. And the only way that that happens um, is through that process of repetition, um, which is, you know, very much tied into the practice of adaptation. In addition to discussing theatrical adaptation, you also look at adaptation of the visual arts, painting, illustration, engraving, and so on. What role do these artists play in the adaptation of literary sources, and how do their works shape the reception of these literary texts? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, because... Um, you know, one of the things that in, a lot of times what what we don't realize when we're thinking about um, the visual arts is just how much the visual arts have always been indebted to some kind of adaptation. And we in the 18th and 19th century, the practice of kind of his, historic painting, um, which was kind of the most academic and most kind of um, fine art form of painting um, always relied on, you know, the, the, the kind of visualizing of um, figures, biblical figures, bi uh, figures from classical mythology um, and literary figures. This is like the, you know, a lot of what um, the subjects of these paintings are. Um, and so one of the things that people sometimes maybe um, like don't really think too much about is well, what what it, what is the role here in kind of shaping the work and shaping the reception of the work? Um, because we think about it, if we think about these illustrations as, oh, we're just going to take a book and copy it faithfully, um, then we're really ignoring that um, the visual artists who are participating are also in interpreters, right? In many ways, they are also scholars and critics um, because they are taking their own, they're putting their own spin on what they read, what they imagine, what, 
they read and 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 sometimes kind of they insert their own um, political viewpoints into into that piece um, as they're shaping it. So um, they played a, a large role um, in in many ways, um, but they also often changed the way that the text was received. So I think that one really great example that we don't think about because we don't think of him as a commercial success because he was not in his time, but um, William Blake is a figure who shows up in this book as an adapter, um, as a visual adapter. And um, you see his illustrations, for example, of Dante or his illustrations of um, Milton in particular of Paradise Lost as really participating in the kind of cultural reimagining of these older works and specifically of Milton because, um, you know, the romantics, um, for those of us who study that period, we know that the romantics were really fascinated with Milton's Paradise Lost, but they are fascinated in not reclaiming Milton necessarily on his own terms, but kind of reformatting and adapting Milton um, to fit their own political, um, their their own political ideas based in their own contemporary moment. So, you know, um, Blake, William Blake and Percy Shelley, you know, famously see Satan, for example, as like one of the most fascinating um, poetic figures um, in Paradise Lost. And you see um, that definitely coming through in Blake's illustrations, like his engravings for Paradise Lost, where he, you know, he envisions Satan as this very beautiful, seductive figure um, in, in a number of, you know, in ways that really kind of ask us to critically engage with the tradition itself. Um, you see this happening also later in the 19th century, um, as women begin to illustrate works. So one of the examples, again, I, I come back to Camelot um, in one of the in in one of the chapters because I'm really interested in how um, late 19th century women visual artists um, like um, Margaret Cameron um, really come come in and kind of put their own spin on works and kind of really focus on the women characters of the story world. And they're, they're doing that because they are identifying with those characters and not happy with the way that they have um, been portrayed. So Julia Margaret Cameron um, ends up doing this. She's one of the early kind of big photographers in the Victorian period. And she, um, does this kind of series of photographic illustrations and, you know, in, in conversation with Tennyson himself. Um, and, and you see her kind of reimagining these, um, these women as these more sympathetic figures. Um, and you see that really happening, um, continuing to happen later on in the earliest 20th century with illustrators like Jesse King, who really kind of take a completely different view of figures like Guinevere and see her as a largely sympathetic figure. Um, and that those are definitely contemporary readings, right? The, this is definitely um, something that happens, um, you know, in tandem with the rise of the idea of the new woman and early feminist movements. Um, and so the, the role that the visual artists play in shaping these texts is, is really big, especially as, um, the demand for reprints is often kind of tied to a demand for um, illustrated editions. And so what they're doing is basically serving as um, visual interpreters and critics um, and shaping the reception of the work along the way. So in the fourth chapter, you discuss the idea of story worlds, such as the one created by Charles Dickens and his later adapters. So what is a story world? Why did they thrive in the 19th century? And how do these aggregate worlds anticipate the modern idea of the shared cinematic universe? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, this is exactly the what I was thinking when I was writing that chapter is that, um, or when I really started to think about, well, what what is the parallel? And, and most of the book does that, takes like a contemporary idea and says, well, what's its 19th century kind of equivalent? And so the, the modern idea of the shared cinematic universe is, I think, very much anticipated by um, 
what we would otherwise maybe call mythology in some ways. Um, I, I, I think that the idea of a story world is really helpful in this because um, what you start to see in in the 18th and 19th centuries in the way that adaptations start to work is that it's not just a one-to-one relationship. It's not just, okay, here I am um, a dramatist or I am a visual artist and I'm going to go back to this original text and I'm going to reproduce it faithfully. What you see instead is that um, this, whatever, whoever this new adapter is in whatever form um, they are taking um, to adapt the work. Um, what they're doing is thinking not only about that original text, but also thinking about, well, who else has adapted this work? What have they thought about it? And what you start to see is like these aggregations of adaptations. And so um, th- I think that that becomes key. Like the, what you start to see is that it's not just the story that the original author wanted or whoever the original author sometimes it's it's even more complicated than that but let's say the if you're talking about a specific book that something is based on it's not about reproducing that book entirely but maybe completely reimagining um different alternative endings right different alternative ways that the story could have unfolded um you start to think of you know the backstory for characters might be different so you have this kind of modern idea of the prequel um, could be kind of added into this too. Um, and so what you start to see is you have a version of the story populated by characters and it becomes the characters, not necessarily the plots that are the source of the new adaptations. And so I think that, that the idea of story worlds, especially the way we think of transmedia story worlds today, where, you know, we're going to have the the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and we're going to have, you know, some films that have the stories of, you know, know, the Avengers, a bunch of them together, but they're also going to have their offshoot movies, right, where they get to go on their own adventures. You see a version of that happening, and that's especially true with, um, with, again, like an example like Camelot, where you can write the backstories to characters who never got to get stories before, especially the women characters, you start to see a much bigger interest in them. Um, and so one of the reasons, for example, why I keep talking about Camelot, not the Arthurian tradition, is like I like this idea of thinking about the stories of Camelot because Camelot kind of places it in a, an imaginary world that is, um, you know, where it's not King Arthur, right? It's not Arthur who's the center of that world, but it's this place. And that all of these characters are moving in and out of this place this imagined place and that each one of the characters has stories of their own to tell um, is basically this, this idea that was grounding um, my argument in that, in this fourth chapter. Um, and then you also have a kind of another version of that. So that's the older version and the newer version um, in the 19th century is this idea of, of Dickens, right? And Dickens, how is he, how is he remembered? He's remembered primarily through his characters um, and his characters moving through uh, Victorian London. And I think that that continues to be the case um, today, um, especially you have the the show Dickensian, right, which is a mashup of basically all of um, or about a dozen of, of Dickens's novels. And it's just like all of these characters, these memorable characters from different novels coming together into this new story um, to tell this new story in this in this um kind of neo-Victorian story world. Um, so I think that, again, you, when you start to really think about, well, what is what is the practice that's um, driving these decisions and these formats, you start to see that they have a historical precedent um, and one that goes really far back. Um, and, you know, you could write a book called Transmedia Adaptation in the early modern period. Um, it would look a little bit different than the book that I wrote, but there would still be elements of this that you could still still trace back back then and I hope that there's a Shakespearean out there who wants to you know write that book um, or someone who who specializes more in like a, you know the the medieval um, tradition who will write that book um, you, it's gonna look a little bit different but that that kind of foundational practice of 
wanting to repeat these stories, wanting to take these characters on new adventures, wanting to reimagine, wanting to re- to modernize them, and sometimes wanting to like completely rewrite and critique that original version. Um, these are all practices that you see v- different variations of them happening at different historical moments. So one thing I really loved in your book was your discussion of tie-ins and merchandising in the 19th century. What kind of souvenirs and collectibles were produced at the time? What was their relationship to the source material and who would have bought these kinds of tie-ins and why? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, this is where you really start to see um, the practice of adaptation as a, as a, as a truly commercial um, endeavor in the 19th century. So, cause I mean, you could make the case that, well, you know, the play, they're trying to create art and they are trying to create art there, but the theater managers are also trying to sell tickets. Um, but then there, then there's the existence of all of these other artifacts that, um, start to really uncover, um, how much of a commercial practice this was. So, um, in the book, the two that I focus on is, or are, um, the first are like these kind of pulp abridgments um, that, you know, are just really fascinating in their own right. Um, but you can tell that they they are sometimes like gothic mashups of a bunch of different sources. So um, in 1825, there's this series of endless entertainment. Um, it's called, the series called Endless Entertainment. And it, and it really is a precursor to like the um, science fiction magazines of the 1920s and 30s, these pulp fiction and detective fiction magazines. Um, but this Endless Entertainment series is, is, is a series of adaptations. And there's a Frankenstein version. And you can tell when you read it that it's adapting both parts. I mean, there's a familiarity with Mary Shelley, but it's also um, reimagining or adapting the work um, through the lens of its adaptations. And so, um, the, like I had said before, the big adaptation of 1823 was called Presumption. And so the word presumption shows up so many times in this, this abridgment. It's this pulp, kind of a magazine. And so the creature is speaking and he's saying, I am the, the danger of thy pres- presumption. And you can tell that this is completely channeling the stage version, um, even the way that the, that the that little pulp adaptation, this pulp fiction adaptation ends um, is, you know, with an avalanche, which is basically the way that presumption, the stage version ended. Um, there is no avalanche. I mean, there's definitely the Arctic in, in at the end of Mary Shelley's novel, but there's no avalanche. And so the, you could tell that the writer here um, is being influenced primarily by the stage version. And then there's kind of a secondary interest in the original novel. Um, so it's not really about that at all. It's about selling this, you know, magazine, which is a series. Um, and so you can, you can tell there that this is re- very much like, you know, today you could buy, um, you know, a comic book, basically a comic book version of, um, of a film. And um, it's, a, it's, it's basically, it's parallel in the 19th century. Um, the other one, though, that people get really, really interested in, and I find really interesting as well, um, are these toy theaters. As I, as I talk about them extensively in this chapter, and there's a lot more work to be done on, on, on these artifacts. But basically, toy theaters were um, these miniature versions of the contemporary stage. And so they started off in the early 19th century as just theatrical souvenirs. And, um, you know, so you would go in and you would see your favorite actors. And when you come out of the theater, um, you know, across the street, you can go to the bookseller and buy a print, um, you know, of your favorite actor, um, you know, in whatever costume they were wearing. And so um, they start to become uh, what were like these full page prints start to become miniaturized. Um, and eventually children start to get really interested in these items as collectibles. And so what I do in, in the second half of the chapter that I discuss, um, the toy theater um, phenomenon is really kind of go through the history of like how it emerged. Um, and that's based on other, other, you know, other research that 
is out there, but with a different focus. And what I think, what I, one of the things I was looking at is like, well, so many of the stories, is they start to sell these full theatrical sets. So it's not just, it starts off being like, geez, one print of, a, of an actor, then like, oh, here, here's the entire cast. And then they start to get driven by this idea of like, well, we need to kind of attach them to something. So we're going to um, also include kind of a child-friendly adaptation of um, the play so that kids can play with this and and kind of reenact these stories. Um, and so Shakespeare's works are really popular. Um, Scott's work our, our works are very popular at the time and they they become they, they all like almost all of Scott's books or novels at the time um, that get adapted for the stage have a toy version or toy theater version of them that's available um, and you know this is it's really exciting to me to think about this because um, what I started to see in in these adaptations, what I started to see in these adaptations is that they are they are very much not based on the original works, um, at least not in the way that we think of it. They're they're based on these contemporary stage versions of the works, and so you start to have these these items. And again, it, this is just one example because um, I talk a lot about the kind of the rise of children's media here too and children's culture, um, where you know these sets were a way to um, engage younger audiences, some of whom, you know, may not have been, you know, attending the plays at all, maybe some of them who weren't interested in reading, um, uh, but that this was like a form of play um, that was engaging and it was a way to kind of inspire creativity. And um, I have a colleague, Jonathan Ray Lee, who um, works actually on contemporary uh, Lego um, and games, and and he's he's made the case that these 19th century toy theaters are very similar to the way that we think of Legos today, where um, you know you can go out and buy Lego sets that are based on these are you know licensed merchandise that are based on um, the D the DC universe, the um, Marvel universe. Um, you can buy Harry Potter Legos. You can, you know, and so it's kind of the same idea. And it's this this idea that you can have this open ended play on one end, an open ended use, um, but that you have these characters that you love and that you want you you know just like you would want your Harry Potter uh, minifig in you know today, or at least maybe ten year olds would, or you know lots of adults too. Um, that the, the chi 19th century child would also be interested in, you know, this open-ended play with these art, these, you know, toys that were based on, um, again, now stories that were seen as important enough to kind of, um, to reproduce in this format. Um, you see a lot of fairy tales being um, issued as toy theater collections as well and all of these fairy tales also had their stage versions that were circulating at the time so um i think that those are some like it's just a really um great example you have you have there are plenty of other items too um I, Sarah Mir has done some really great work in documenting like the phenomenon that was Uncle Tom's Cabin um, in the mid 19th century and specifically as a commercial phenomenon. Um, and you see, you know, different types of souvenirs and um, things like um, uh, cigarette cards, which, you know, are, they're like baseball, tra like trading cards today. It's, it's, it's a very similar kind of um, phenomenon. It looks a little bit different because it's the 19th century version of it. Um, but, you know, you have people who are become collectors, basically. And so there's, there's, there's a way there's basically what you start to see in this 19th century commercial environment is people coming in and saying, well, how can we market this to, um, to children? How can we market this to adults? How can we market, you know, just different audiences what would they like to see and you know how can we make our product more attractive and one of the ways to do that is to kind of attach it to um, a story world attach it to a famous text attach it to a celebrity um, and all of these processes and um, practices get you know mixed together and really become this very open-ended and um, 
really kind of widespread cultural practice in the 19th century and beyond. That's really fascinating. Thank you. So before we finish up, are you working on any new projects at the moment? Do you have anything new in the works? And what can you tell us about any upcoming projects that you might have? Yeah, I actually have, I always have too many projects, but I I am working on a few projects that um, are very much tied to um, both the interests um, in 19th century and adaptation. So um, I'm currently working with a colleague of mine who's at the University of Central Arkansas. Um, His name is Glenn Jelinek. We are co-editing a collection um, that is called Adaptation Before Cinema. And we have um, a broader historical scope for that piece. So we have um, some some examples from the medieval and early modern period, and then also 18th and 19th century examples. So that's an edited collection that we are currently working on with, um, we have 13 contributors for that. Um, and um, I am working on um, another thing that I do, and it's very much grounded in adaptation, is I work on a, um, a, a professional development program for K through 12 educators um, that's about ways of strategizing how to use adaptation in the K through 12 classroom. And that is a, an NEH funded summer institute um, that was supposed to be held um, in 2020, but is now postponed for 2021 because so many things have done. And I do that with a colleague here of mine at the University of Arkansas, uh, Sean Connors, who is in English education. Um, and it, this has been an incredibly productive collaboration that we do. And we're really hoping that other people will think about doing these ongoing professional development programs because it's a way um, of bringing the research that we do in the academy to a wider audience. Um, I'm also working on my own individual, uh, my next book project individually is actually a a transmedia cultural history of the Bride of Frankenstein. So I am in the early stages of that project, but it's it's coming along. I'm really, really excited about this project. I've, I've talked to a few people and, and one of the things I, mean, I think is really exciting is when I say, it's like, oh, I'm working on a book on, about the Bride of Frankenstein. And they're like, oh, you mean the movie? I'm like, no, well, the movie will be in it. I'm just, I mean, the figure, the, like the, yeah, the character. Yeah. And um, they're like, but she doesn't exist. I'm like, but she does. She exists in so many ways. And nobody's written a book about this. And so I am writing a book about this and I'm very excited to do it um, because it's, it's a, a book that, actually shows the power of adaptation. She is a figure the, as, a, as, a, as a character. She's a figure that is completely um, created through adaptation because she's only an idea in Shelley's novel. Um, and so I, I just find that really exciting. And it's something that's, it's, it's, it's bringing my interest in adaptation and the 19th century, but it's bringing it more into a, a present moment because so many of these you know, all of these adaptations of the Bride of Frankenstein figure are, you know, from 1935 on. So that's my big next solo project. Um, and the other, the, the last thing I can want to mention um, is that one of the things that has been really central to my um, my understanding about adaptation is like, I don't just look at this um, as a scholar, but I... I have the fortune, sorry, I don't look at this just as a scholar. I have the fortune of being married to an artist. So I'm married to a poet. Um, his name is Jeffrey Davis. And um, he has really encouraged me to kind of think about this as a, an art, you know, artistic practice. And so I'm, I'm very fortunate, you know, through my connection with him and all of his connections to really see so many artists working on adaptations of their own. Increasingly, I get more creative writing students in my adaptation classes because they're interested in kind of thinking about adaptation as a creative process, not just like a critical um, approach to it. And so that has inspired me too to, to, to do some of my own creative work. And so I've, I've actually started working on um, some, of, some of my own adaptations, specifically of Frankenstein, but I have um, a complicated um personal medical history and I'm actually a two-time cancer survivor and this story is one that is very much um, part of the contemporary medical landscape and so I'm working on some of my own creative writing kind of working through these ideas um, about what it means to 
really survive in a world that often is, you know, the odds are against you. And so I have um, a, kind of a special place in my heart for the Frankenstein story, not just as a scholar, but as, you know, as a survivor and someone who is really thinking about how can we really make stories our own and how, how does kind of leaning on a, an existing story help you work through your own traumas, your own um, existence and survival. So those are, I have a lot of projects, <laughs> hopefully, <laughs> but they all, and they all come back to this idea, right? The, like the 19th century works and adaptation are just so central to um, my work across the board. And so, but there's so many variations on it. And yeah, that's what I'm trying to do. That sounds like such an interesting project. It really, it really does sound fascinating. So just as we're closing up today, I'd like to thank Lizette again for being a guest on the show. Her book, Transmedia Adaptation in the 19th Century, is out now from Ohio State University Press, and you can purchase a copy from their website mm -hmm. and from all good online retailers. Um, so thanks again, Lizette, and I am so looking forward to your upcoming project on The Bride of Frankenstein as well. I love that character, so I'm just fascinated. So thanks again, Lizette, and thank you to our audience for choosing in, choosing in, for tuning in. And you can find more podcasts on a host of different books over at the New Books website right now. <laughs>